Happy Tag Tuesday. I'm Ann Police. And I'm Denise Cooper. We are Two Average Girls. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I had a good weekend. How about you? It was good. It's been good. Yeah, just chilling. But right now, there's a weather phenomenon happening in Southern California that is um, a, a hurricane, essentially, Hurricane Hillary. I, which, if you I have not participated, believe. if you haven't seen those memes of Hillary so Clinton being a hurricane, you, you've missed out on a lot in life because they are the thing life is made of. It's pretty It's pretty funny, and it's also just kind of fascinating. You know, I... I've been through a hurricane, as our listeners know. I spent a honeymoon <laughs> at the basement of the Hotel Americana. Go back in... and listen to um, I'm in the Basement with You. Yes. that was. Uh, I experienced a Category 6, I think it was. I'm not even sure what categories. It's the highest category you can go. Category a million. <laughs> I have million trillion category. <laughs> it was next level. I feel about as sweaty and it. I feel like I'm in Kauai, but it doesn't smell good here. Oh no! You know how it smells so good when you get off the plane in Hawaii. If no, as one my mother-in-law says, that. no, that's my mother-in-law says the air hugs you, oh. and it smells delicious because the air does hug you. It's like it kind does of really this... hug you, and it's not just mm. because it's humid. It hugs you. It's humid, and you don't care because you smell this plumeria mixed with sugarcane, mixed with ocean, mixed with aloha, and you are just so happy. All the aloha. So I'm if you want to, wanna, if you want to go back and hear. Denise's experience on mm -hmm. the basement floor. It's called I'm on the basement floor with you and it's episode three. Oh what? Gosh. What were we doing back then? We were living our best life. <laughs> were we? I don't know. I think I think that we were just trying to make it happen. We were so gosh, we we have learned so much since then that it's so weird. But we are now on do you know what episode we're even on? I can tell you. Do you know the name of the hurricane that you were in? Gilbert. That's right. It was Gilbert. That's funny. Um, let me tell you which episode we are on. Episode. This will be episode 113. If you've never been in a hurricane, you would forget the names of hurricanes. But if you've ever experienced a hurricane in a third world country, as I did, you will never forget the name. Nope. It's it's etched on. Well, it's, it's tattooed on Denise's lower back. <laughs> She's got a tramp stamp that says Hurricane Gilbert. I literally don't, but I could. <laughs> so here in California, you know, the, the news, weather is always news here, right? Because mm -hmm. we don't get a lot of weather. And so, you know, all the meteorologists have just been going cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs over Hillary coming to town. Mm -hmm. And last night I went and I had the best time at the pageant of the Masters in yes. Laguna Beach. Yes. And for those who don't live around here and have no idea, Laguna Beach, you probably have heard of because that's one of the very first reality shows. Do you remember they used to have all, I mean, Laguna Beach was put on the map because of this reality show of a bunch of spoiled kind of teenagers living their life in Laguna. Mm -hmm. And Laguna has a very special place in my heart because my husband and I 
it's only about 15 miles from our house. You drive up the coast to get there, down the coast to get there. And literally it's like transports you to a different place. And mm-hmm. what Laguna is known for is their artist colony. I mean, mm-hmm. it started as an artist colony. It's just such a magical little place. But every year for the summer, they put on the Sawdust Festival and the Pageant mm-hmm. of the Masters. And both of those, the Sawdust Festival has got more like arts and crafts, but very well done artists who are actually making a living at their craft. Yeah, so, we're not talking about glued macaroni on a piece of construction paper. We're it's not actual talking art. About glue guns or, you know, decoupage or anything like that. Not that Although there's anything we wrong might with see that. some decoupage there because people are super crafty and very, very artistic. Yeah. They're not at the level that you and I are at which is very good for them because they can actually make money off their things. I was going to say, what, are we even at a level? I don't even we know. We are that below. Ever... We are in the basement okay. with our, okay. with our crafting, with our craft talent. Yeah. Yes. With our craft talent. But yeah. these people are great. And we went to the pageant side, which is, these are artists who, when you see something you like, it's going to be like, you know, three, five, 10, $20,000. Like sure. this is like people put their, this art in, you know, commercial buildings and they're in their homes that are worth a lot of money. My husband and I go every single year, at least once. And sometimes we've gone multiple times because it's just a great walk around. The vibe is so great. And it's just this. And and the greatest thing is the artists are usually sitting there next to their work. Mm -hmm. So you get to listen to them and talk to them about their craft and how they came up with these ideas and things that they've done. Yeah. And and I think, the, and also, sorry to interrupt, but the Pageant of the Masters is world famous. And for people who don't know, Pageant of the Masters is, they bring actual masterpieces of art to life. They have real actors, they call them actors, who are portraying everybody in a piece of art. And it's life-size, it's on this huge stage. And it's unbelievable. I believe the final, um, is the final piece of art still The Last Supper? Is that it what is. they do still? It is. Okay. It has been since 1936, I believe. Oh, yeah. It was, it's amazing. This started as a love project for a couple. I can't tell you their names because I can't remember it. But if you look up the pageant of the masters, I was in Miami um, trying to tell some artists that I talked to about the pageant. And I was literally stumbling over I couldn't figure out what to say and how to describe it if you've never seen it it brings it to life but what they'll do is they have this big outdoor area amphitheater that Mm -hmm. holds hundreds and hundreds of people Mm -hmm. you go in there and for two hours they reenact or depict a picture in a two-dimension way with three-dimensional human beings Mm -hmm. it is the craziest mind-blowing my husband had never been there this would probably be my fourth or fifth time going to this event my mm-hmm. husband had never gone there we were in the fourth row oh, great seats right up there right up there mm-hmm. we could see the orchestra before they closed it off and so there's a live orchestra they have music they have a narrator they're talking about history they're talking about individual artists and they'll all of a sudden show like a Renoir or they'll show something from Lautrec. They'll just show all these. They had impressionists last night. That was kind mm-hmm. of what it was. Mm-hmm. It was just, I'm telling you, it's almost like a magic show. You're like, wait, you can buy or bring binoculars in. You can rent them. And you're like trying to see if people are moving. And they right. show sculptures all gold, a 14 karat gold, humongous life-size sculpture that was, you know, made in the 15th century. 
and it's got two individuals that are completely naked, covered in gold, and it looks exactly like the small tabletop size that was made. Version. It is just... <gasps> yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, the Pageant of the Masters, actually, though, uh, while you were talking, I was listening, listening intently, but I was also looking up because I knew it was called some French thing. It's called Tableau Vivant or oh. Living Picture. Oh. And it's actually, a, it's actually a famous way of doing... Um, classical works it's a reenactment by real people so they look identical to the originals but yeah it was it's an old school way of of doing things i think they would put these pageants on back in the day before there was you know netflix or anything fun like that so anyway you know the pageant of the masters is a yearly thing i think the only time they've closed it or not held it is probably world war ii and covid i'm guessing well, but i can tell you right now it's closed today and tomorrow because of hurricane hillary and that's called Bring It Back Around, Denise Cooper. Exactly. I, yeah. As we left it, the only one or two artists still had works up because the anticipation of the wind and the amount of rain, everybody's outside in little covers. They have little covers for all their stuff, but you're mm -hmm. outside in the elements and these works of arts would be ruined. And they weren't, we were anticipating, you know, gale force winds that haven't happened yet. Hopefully they don't happen, but yeah. it is... It just made me happy, and I woke up today feeling a better person because I had been there. And I art transforms yeah. me. It transfers me to places. It makes me feel good. I love it. I dig it's, it. And it is one of those things, the pageant of the masters, that if you've never seen it and you happen to find yourself in Southern California in um, the, what, June, July, August? I think it closes July, September. July, August. It's September 1st, I think, is the last day. Okay. If you find yourself in Southern California and can somehow wrangle a ticket to that, it's amazing um so you should definitely you can also get on youtube and see what people you know what we're talking about but it is it is out of this world extraordinary and and so not strange isn't the right word it's just like kind of a one-of-a-kind thing that this little this little town in southern california offers it's very strange my husband and i'm going to tell a tale out of school here sorry babe um he they rides when with, we do this by the way they love it he rides with a motorcycle gang i don't know if you knew that <laughs> He does. When you call it a gang, there's a, uh, you can call it a gang just for people so that they can feel like he's like one of the Hells Angels or the... There's an element to the word gang that maybe doesn't fit warrant my husband's personality, but yeah. Um, but he, it's a motorcycle gang and he was ticketed in Laguna Beach, I believe it was last summer, uh, because he broke a noise ordinance yes. on his Harley yes. and it was an expensive ticket. And really? when, yes, and, and because... The thing is, you drive down Pacific Coast Highway through Laguna Beach, and you're sort of there to see and be seen. Lots of high-end cars, yes. Ferraris, Lamborghinis. They're not known for being quiet. Mm -mm. So in the summer, that little town really suffers with loud people who are like, yeah, <laughs> check it out. You know, this kind of thing. So there's a noise ordinance. I think it's just in the summer months, and he just happened to be wrong place, wrong time. There's a cop on a corner waiting for people with their super loud cars and he pulled out pulled him over and my husband's like did how many of these do you give out a day and he's like you just wouldn't even believe it dozens dozens okay. he okay. just sits there pulling people over so my husband took one for the team because all of those guys in his motorcycle gang they're the town <laughs> they're really the town toughs i think you could call them um they were all breaking the the noise ordinance and the cop was like, absolutely, you were all breaking it, but I caught you. And Horn's like, sounds great. Go so ahead and give me a ticket. So he's the slowest in the group. I don't mean that as a bad thing. I'm just saying next time he might want to be up at the front. 
or or is he the fastest in the group? Well, he was he the, the fastest? First. You don't know. I don't know where he was in the lineup. I'll have I'm to ask him. Just saying, the cop got him. The cop did get him. Yeah, he might just be saying. the slowest. He might, he might be, the, be slowest. the slowest. I'm just saying. No offense. That's okay. It's not. It's not supposed to be a diss on him. He's I'm safe. sure he won't feel that way at all. I'm sure he will. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Warren. That's okay. So anyway, we're glad to be back together, at least via the magic of Zoom and and the magic of Aiden, our editor, who manages to put together these things, even when we're recording from different areas of the world. So glad to be back. We're going to start a new segment, though. And um we think you're gonna. We think you're gonna like it. We're going to do more than one in a series, and I don't know how many we're gonna we're gonna hit, but I know we're gonna do more than one um, because it's kind of my thing in life. It's kind of about what I find to be. If anybody knows me, and they say, "What is your motto?" I can tell you right now. You want? Can I tell you? Can I yes, tell everybody? Please. Life's about relationships. Life's about relationships. As a young women's leader in my church. And as a mother to small children, I often, and I, when I say often, probably way too much, it got to be like rolling their eyes at me. I wouldn't have to finish the sentence. I could just literally say, what is life about? And then there would be this, wah, 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 right? Like, because they knew. And I, I, still, I still feel that as we move forward in life, no matter what age you're at, and I was a sociology major. I don't mean to brag. I'm, um, I'm impressed. I know. Nobody is impressed. Everyone thinks, well, she wasn't smart enough to do anything else, so she's just That's a sociology major. But I literally love sociology because I love looking at human beings. And like when we're talking a lot about true crime, my whole deal is what is going on with that person and why, right? Mm -hmm. We're always dissecting individuals. When we're talking about life being about relationships, I feel like there's three aspects that we literally have to look at when you're talking about that. Here's this is life according to Denise, but it's it's life's about relationship and they and this is the order and people might have different orders for what they believe the most important relationships are, but in my opinion, the first relationship that's the most important is the relationship you have with yourself. And again, that's a whole podcast in itself. The second one to me is the relationship you have with your heavenly father and Jesus Christ and or your higher power, whatever that happens to be. So your spiritual power, who is that? And then the third one would be the relationship that you have with your family and your friends. And my personal feeling is, and you know, think about this. When you have a relationship that is copacetic with yourself, when you have a relationship that looks like a pretty healthy relationship with yourself, then you can move on to those other relationships and be really hitting it out of the park or at least attempting to get to a place where they can be healthier. The one you have with yourself is the hardest and I think it's ever evolving and ever changing, which is why it makes it so difficult. Last week when we were talking about the talk by President Nelson about being a peacemaker, one thing that he emphasized in there was, all of you are thinking about someone who should be hearing this talk or should be focused on this. But what we realized as we were 
reading it ourselves and discussing was that it was meant for us. Yeah. And a lot of times we look at others as the issue or the problem or the reason we're not feeling good about ourselves because somebody else did this to us or they're somebody else is acting a certain way when really comes down to the relationship we have with ourselves. Correct. So we took a little spin on it because hearing other people's version of your idea is always more interesting. It's like, oh, well, I think that too. Or, oh, I never thought of that. So this suggestion comes to us from friend of the podcast, Jani Stone. What's mm-hmm. up, Jani? Uh, she was talking to me recently about um, an author named David Brooks. And so today we're going to be talking a little bit about David Brooks, his TED Talk specifically. We are leaning heavily on David Brooks's words and the things he says once you start hearing what if you haven't listened to his TED talk you'll understand he is he's amazing and he has some really great points that he's made and it's sort of one of those things where it's like well we can't say this better ourselves so we want to give all credit to David Brooks and his his TED talk but first I want to tell you a little bit about who David Brooks is in case you haven't heard of him which I hadn't before Janny introduced me to him he became an op-ed columnist for the New York Times in September of uh, 2003 he is currently a commentator on the PBS NewsHour NPR's All Things Considered and NBC's Meet the Press. This guy's legit. He's legit, right? He's the author of Bobos in Paradise and The Social Animal. In April of 2015, he released his fourth book, The Road to Character. It was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Right now, his latest book is called The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. You can pick that up on Amazon like I did or go to your local small bookseller and have them order it for you. Brooks also teaches at Yale University. He's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He graduated with a bachelor's in history from University of Chicago before he became a the police beat reporter for City News Bureau. It's a wire service that is owned jointly by the Chicago Tribune and the Sun-Times. Now, that makes it sound like it's very Midwestern. I Here in California, we have used City News Bureau. That is a wire uh, that we get information from especially if there's news happening you know in the united states that maybe isn't in our backyard so it's 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 legit i'm so impressed with this guy he also worked at the washington times as well as the wall street journal for nine years his last post on the journal was an op-ed as the editor prior to that uh he was posted in brussels covering russia the middle east south africa and the and european affairs his first post at the journal was as editor of the book review section and uh he filled in for the as the journal's movie critic so he's done all kinds of things he also served as the senior editor at the weekly standard for nine years i mean just we could go on and on he was a contributing editor for the atlantic as well as newsweek so this guy not only knows how to write but he also has really interesting insight to a lot of different things which is why we are leaning so heavily on his ted talk I'm going to ask you, are you a TED Talker? I'm not as much as I should be, and it's one of those things that I need to get more into. I will absolutely listen or watch a TED Talk if someone recommends it to me, but I don't go out actively seeking them, and I really should because they're they're kind of my jam. Me too. I, and when you said that, after Janie recommended this to us, I immediately went on there and listened to it, and then I went down the rabbit hole of listening to the suggested ones next to it. Like, you get on yeah. TED Talks, and then... There's like 15 down there, and I spend like two hours listening to all these TED Talks, and it's really motivational. I mean, these are like 
really smart, very well scripted slash spoken by the people. Yeah. And there's just such a connection you get through these TED Talks. And you were talking about this guy's legit. When you listen to him speak, he's very smart. Yes. He's very articulate. His communication skills are on point. Mm -hmm. I felt like after I listened to his talk and then read his talk and then listened to it again because I knew we were going to be doing this, I felt like I was smarter myself. Like, yeah, yes, <laughs> like it's you just, were. he's very insightful. And one of the things I appreciate about this talk itself is this is my jam. Yeah, his TED talk is called The Lies Our Culture Tells Us About What Matters and A Better Way to Live. Yeah, so there's that sort of pause there where it's mm -hmm. like, this is the problem and now I'm presenting you with a with a solution. Here's some things you can do. It's always so easy to be obvious about what the problems are. Everybody's got an opinion about what the problem is. We all know what the problem is. The question is, what is the answer? So the solutions that he comes up with, though, are so simple. And so the part of the problem with sometimes people giving you solutions is they're sort of talking down to you. This is not it at all. What I love about the way he started this talk, and that's what caught my attention, is he says this. So we all have bad seasons in life. Do you, I'm a seasons person, mm -hmm. meaning I relate to that. And mm -hmm. I, when he said those words, the very first thing that came to my mind wasn't because what I thought of was a bad season, but it was the first time in my life as an adult or as a human being that I realized you have seasons. But this wise woman told me when I remember saying, I just feel bad because I can't get this other thing done. Maybe it was the genealogy or maybe it was attending a, another meeting of some sort. And she said, honey, it's not your season. <sighs> yeah. And I thought that was the best advice that somebody had ever given me to that point. It yeah. gave me the permission to say, okay, I don't have to do it all. Right. And sometimes you can put something off for a, a moment. But when he spoke in the term, we all have bad seasons in life, it also directed me to a place where I've had a bad season. We've all had those, those goods and those bads. And I think you can look back on life and go, oof, that was the season. And I don't, I can kind of move on. But the beauty is that the season changes, right? The yeah. idea of a season is that it doesn't stay the same. He, he then starts to describe a season of his, um, for himself that was bad. And he went through a terrible marriage. He went through a terrible divorce. And he felt the magnitude of that and feeling really inadequate and feeling guilty about not being able to keep his marriage commitment together. Right? right. He felt like a failure, which I'm sure I've never been through a divorce, but I can only imagine it's probably everybody has to feel that way at one side or the other, even if you are glad you're being divorced. No, even if, especially. Even if. if. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's still, a, it's still a, a place in time that didn't work out the way you thought right. it was going to. And now, um, but he then goes on to talk about how lonely he was yeah. in the midst of that divorce. And that's right. really where, the, for me, this whole thing begins. And he talks mm -hmm. about how the loneliness was really unexpectedly came in the form like he felt like a burning in his stomach. And I'm, this is a quote that he says, and he says, Part of that moment was the awareness of the emptiness in my apartment, which was reflective of the emptiness in myself, and that I had fallen from some of the I had fallen for some of the lies that our culture tells us. Yeah. So then he breaks it down into the various lies. First lie being that 
career success is fulfilling. <laughs> this makes me laugh. Because, me too. Me too. Yeah. I mean, it's at the, at the one side, it's like, well, yes, career success is fulfilling. Also, career failure is very heavy as well. Like if you don't, if you're not doing well in your career or you're not doing something you want to do or you continue to jump from one job to another thinking that it's going to be better, um, it's, it's, that's not how it works. But also nothing else can, even if you're having success in your career, if you're having failure somewhere else, the success in the career doesn't feel quite as good. But think about this. What is the commonality for every person that graduates from high school? What is your focus? What is college. society telling you to do? College. Get but a why job. are you going to college? Exactly. Yeah. To get a career. I mean, mm -hmm. career from the time that you are, you're in high school and you're going to AP classes and you're being told by the system that unless you have a 4.5 GPA and unless you know the most of anybody in the school, you're not going to get into a good college. And if you don't get into a good college, you're not going to be successful and you're not going to get a good job. And it goes on and on and on as part of the lie that we're telling ourselves so that we have, I guess, a reason for working hard. I don't know what it is. It's, it, you know, it's working for the machine a little bit. I mean, I don't mean to sound doomsday-ish, but it is one of those things where it's like, why are we working so hard for the, at this point in our lives as high school children? Why do we have to decide? That's what always slayed me was when Cameron was applying for colleges, they wanted to know what his major was. And I'm like, he's 18. He doesn't know what his major is. I've had you more couldn't... girls come to me as a, a mentor and a leader saying to me, I don't know what I want to do. Yeah. And my right. response is, you shouldn't know yet. You're 18, 18, 19, 20. Half the people on this earth, more than that, probably don't know what they want to do and they're way past that, those ages. Oh, I yeah. still could and change my, my career. Uh, seriously. I mean, uh, there's so many examples I could give, but I won't bore the audience with all of the career uh, decisions I went through, starting with, I wanted to be Snow White. Can't I just get into a character costume and work for Disney for the rest of my life? You totally well, should have. I'm just saying no, you totally should have. You could have. No one wants to see a 50-year-old Snow White. That's well, all I'm not saying. not now, but I'm just saying when you were younger, you could have done it. I will. I missed, you have I guess a Snow I missed White an opportunity. Costume. I do. Yeah, I have I'd several. like to see you in that. I'll, I'll post a picture. Maybe you could be Snow White and I'll be the witch that gives you the apple you can't be the wicked witch no dd you have to be cinderella or something okay i'd rather you have be to cinderella be in, anyway you have to be a different princess you can't okay. be you can't be evil okay but yeah so that's the first lie that he says that you know they're the culture is telling us and right there i was like oh you've said everything you need to say i couldn't agree more the second lie though is this is the one that i think denise loves the most is that i can make myself happy with just one more victory just one more one more good thing if i if i get on this diet if i do keto if i do if i do then some yoga you know I'll make myself, I'll make happy. myself happy how many people in your life i know first of all we all fall into this trap there's just no getting around it especially mm -hmm. with what we are being fed through society without looking deep without having meaningful relationships without doing any of these things we are looking at a external world that put so much emphasis on those types of things. Yeah, he goes on to say that the only way to be happy is with deep relationships in life. 
That's the only way you yourself is going to be happy. These exterior things aren't going to make you happy. Well, he says that the lie of self-sufficiency, which is you've got to stay, you've got to stay strong because there's nobody else in your life that's going to help you the way you're going to help yourself, right? Mm You've got to look out for number one. Yeah. And he's, he says on nobody on their deathbed was glad that they were by themselves in this journey. (laughs) Yeah. Not one person. I mean, I would say it's probably the exact opposite of what is important when you are facing your mortality, which is the more people in your life, the the better. Yeah. Counting those relationships and, you know, with the good ones, the great ones, the really meaningful ones. Yeah. Absolutely. The third lie is the lie of meritocracy. I didn't know this word. I'd never heard this word. I immediately had to go look it up. Meritocracy. So you can figure it out. The lie of, of, of merit that you are what you accomplish. That's right. who you are. Right. So what's wrong with that? Well, it, some examples of that are like if you're a self-made millionaire. Mm-hmm. When you hear that of somebody, it gives you, it conjures up a idea of that person and what those people are like, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe if you wrote a bestseller book. That's a merit, right? Right. Um, Getting your job because you have higher qualifications. You've got a PhD and the other guy only has a bachelor's degree. Okay. Those are the kind of things that meritocracy tells you is important. Mm -hmm. And that in our society, and it's it's not a lie. It is a lie, but it's true for what we're dealing with that that is really looked at as something important. Well, it is. I mean, a lot, a lot hinges on that, especially, especially for men. I don't mean to be sexist or gender, you know, whatever, but a man's self-worth, you know, this as someone who's married to a self-made person is that a lot of your self-worth is sort of tied up in the fact that you've accomplished something that not a lot of people have accomplished. Yeah. It's kind of rare air up there when you have, when you have a company that you have put together that you've run that you own that's gone through evolutions of different things you know like our company it's not there's it didn't it's not it's not ending the way it began thank goodness you know what i mean there's it's gone through sort of iterations and that's fine but there's a lot of um you're hanging a lot of your self-worth on that and i understand that me too i i understand that especially when you have accomplished so much as far as like maybe getting a lot of degrees or whatever, but he breaks it down even more. And he talks about the emotion of meritocracy. And he says that emotion is conditional love. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh man, he is speaking my language right now. And he (laughs) said, I know I geek out on this stuff. I love it. He said, you, you can earn your way to love. Like the idea of this idea is that you will be able to do, if you just do enough, you will be loved. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. Not true. He says the anthropology and meritocracy is you're not a soul to be purified. You're a set of skills to be maximized. That's awful, right? When you put it that way, it's really bad. It sounds really bad. But the next thing he says, though, really hit me because I've seen this in people. The evil of the meritocracy is that people who've achieved a little more than others are actually worth a little more than others. Exactly. So, I mean, I've you and I have both seen that in people like, oh, I've reached this certain plane or whatever. And it's like, 
Oh, okay. Well, first of all, that tells me a lot about you as a person. But also, if you're a merit-based person, which I think a lot of men are, you haven't had the hard times yet then. You haven't been knocked down yet. Maybe you haven't lived through a recession. I don't know what that means to you and your business. But the minute you start thinking that you're a little bit better than others because you've achieved something more than someone else, then that's when that's when karma's coming to get you. We've talked about this on the podcast about I have a distaste and a real dislike for people who would be okay watching other people work. Oh my goodness. And this <laughs> reminds me of those types of people because <laughs> they look down on others who are doing jobs that they feel are beneath them, yeah. right? I've accomplished so much. I mean, I went to college. That's why I don't get my hands dirty at work. I get to sit behind a desk in air conditioning. If you don't go to college, you might end up like that person. Mm-hmm. That is disgusting and completely... <laughs> what I feel like when I read this, that's what it reminded me of. Do you want to name names, Denise? Do you want to start talking about specific people? Because I, I feel like you could. And, and you already know the people that I have this distaste for because there's nothing more, um, I would say, ugly in a person than thinking you're better than somebody else for that's whatever reason. You have more money. Your clothes are better. You are, you know, more educated. To me, all of those things are thrown out the window for human beings. You just have to come at a level where you can have respect for one another. And yeah. this does not, being in, being this type of person means that you are looking at yourself in a way where there's a hierarchy. Right. And this, there, I feel like there's no place for it. So when he brought this up, I'm just like, yes. Yeah. There's, I mean, like all of these things I've thought, but he has got such a great way of putting it together. Oh, I it know. It really amazing. sounds good. Especially putting it in the, in air in in little boxes that are just titled sin (laughs) sin number one you know it's like oh I can I can completely relate to that so having been a part of all these sins according to David Brooks he said that all he felt was detached he was detached and isolated and fragmented from other people which is just the opposite of sort of what he wanted and needed at that time and I think that's a that's a lot of people in fact he cites he has some numbers here that 35% of Americans over 45 feel chronically lonely. 8% of Americans report having meaningful conversation with their neighbors. Eight. I know. 8% I know. have I know. a meaningful conversation with their neighbors. I know. Okay. I mean, I've, and I had to think of myself. We've had some conversations with some neighbors and they weren't good. I know. I mean. And it's lower than 8%. I can tell you that much. That's so interesting. He also cites suicide rate. And I ended up looking up Mm -hmm. this because he did this talk in 2019. So I looked up and the the best I could find, I could not find suicide rates between 2020 and present. Because I know that they have got to be, have skyrocketed for sure. But since 2000, they have risen 35%. Suicide rates have risen 35%. 35%. Now that's in 20 in, years. Yes, into 2019. You add another three years after COVID, I guarantee you, especially with adolescence, we're yeah. looking at a huge, huge intake. I think when he's talking about this in his talk, he talks about something that is a very good visual. He said he was falling into the valley, mm-hmm. a valley yeah. of disconnection. Right. And I literally could picture 
myself in that valley because I've been there before. I'm a pretty mm -hmm. outgoing, connected person. I thrive when I'm with people. Mm -hmm. I like to have the connection. I'm always working towards a connection because my motto is life's about relationships. I talk you get to into an elevator with Denise <laughs> and your life is changed forever. I just, she I, I, I will like talk people. to anyone. I like yeah. people and I like mm -hmm. people who aren't like me, especially because I like getting outside of myself and finding out about people. It just, for me is what it is. So right. when he said something about that valley, I really, it really connected to me. And I think we can all picture that at that bad time in your life and you're mm -hmm. deep into this valley, right? Yeah. Yeah. The another thing he mentioned, and this is interesting because I had a conversation with my son um, in this last week. The fastest growing political party is unaffiliated. Yeah. Now that I understand because I think we have two major, but you know, a two party system in this in this country, and we have two major parties. And you try and venture into maybe the Green Party or, you know, one of these other independent, whatever. And it's kind of the weirdos sort of come out. Sorry to offend anyone who may be listening that is of those parties. But there's nothing off the beaten track for other people in a realistic way. And that I understood. The second part of his statement, though, was that the fastest growing religious movement is also unaffiliated. And that to me is terrifying. I agree. I, I agree. And along with that, the depression rates are rising, mental health problems are rising, and the suicide rates are rising. Yeah. And I think it's all connected. I'm well, no psychologist. You're no sociologist slash psychologist slash anthropologist, <laughs> like the girl on the other side of the mic. But you are right. Ding, 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 ding. They are yeah. all obviously connected. Mm -hmm. I mean, mind, body, and spirit. You have to have all three to be balanced. That yeah. is what is important. So he talks about the fact that he lived for the next five years to figure out how to get out of the valley. That's a climb, man. It's, it's a, a climb. climb. He says, you have to suffer your way to wisdom. And from that dark period where I started, I've had a few realizations and he goes through those realizations. Now, let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. I, I don't mean to, you know, dump on millennials because they take a lot of slack, uh, flack from people. And I, I mean, it's, some of it's deserved, some of it's not. But, you know, this sort of generation that is, you know, maybe 1920 to 35, that's not millennial, whatever that is. They are so adverse to being uncomfortable. They cannot handle the discomfort. And discomfort is, as far as I'm concerned, is the only way you can grow. Am I right? How else I've, are you going to get out of that valley if you are not realizing your discomfort and trying to climb your way out? I think what you're actually saying is suffering. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. So we have the saying, um, I got it from our life coach, our executive coach, and it is this, suffering equals resilience and adaptability. That's correct. And most of us don't like to suffer. I don't want to suffer ever. I don't either. And so what you're saying, what he is saying is you have to suffer your way to this freedom, which is you feel better about what's going on. Yeah, you have, you have to have a different point of view um, in order to get out of that valley. And the only point of view you're going to be able to get is one that you're getting by climbing out. He also says something that 
I it's it's a love hate relationship with me um, because this is it does have a religious side to it. But that is that freedom sucks. <laughs> and and David Brooks said that period point blank. And mm -hmm. I think with a lot of Christian religions, it's it that the term is not freedom, but the term is your freedom of choice type of thing. Agency. Your freedom, your your free agency, your freedom to choose what you want to do. Here's our guidelines. Here's what we think or we know are going to make for a better life. You can choose to do whatever. At a certain point, you realize as a parent that if you didn't instill those. Um, those types of lessons well enough, they're gonna, they could choose wrong. Even if you did instill those lessons well enough, you did everything you could possibly do, you're winning parent of the year, that's where it becomes really upsetting. They still have the opportunity to choose for themselves. It's a, it's a catch 22, right? We all right. have this freedom mm -hmm. um, social freedom. What he is saying is that social freedom is terrible. It sucks. Oh, it does. Yeah. And, the reason being is because when you can socially choose what you want to do, sometimes you don't make great decisions. No. And sometimes you like test those waters. Like I'm going to dip a toe into this thing that I, you know, my parents would never, especially when you're of that age, 18, 19, 20, you're like, Oh, here's what I'm going to choose. It's going to be great. Um, and then it's, if you can dip a toe in and then get out, congratulations to you. A lot of people end up not only dipping the toe in, but they end up, completely wet in the river just going downstream so he says this is a beautiful quote freedom is not an ocean you want to swim in it's a river you want to get across so that you can commit and plant yourself on the other side yes i and mean there do you know people though that that think that river uh, that freedom is it is just this river that i'm swimming in and it means i can do anything i want there i i know people who are like that and you're like buddy you are missing the boat here you know, I think as I, I, I felt like because I pretty much stay with people that are kind of like I am as far as mm -hmm. I love finding out about other people. I love hearing about other people's antics and choices and lifestyles. For the most part, the people I surround myself with are, are, are people who are planted. Yes. And I've chosen that purposely because my personality and my outlook on life and what's important to me has to align with that type of feeling. I yeah, your circle, you keep your circle pretty tight and it's yeah. all like-minded people. Yeah, and yeah. I I'm like even going last night to the watch these great artists and listen to these artists about how they have to evolve and what their lifestyle is like and how creativity has kind of conjured up this idea of this weird this freedom that it gives me anxiety to think about being that type of person. I love yeah. it in other people. For mm -hmm. me personally, I need something a little more structured and a little less free. <laughs> if That's, that makes any yeah, sense. I, it does. For me, I need a little bit more structure to life. So I don't do well floating across a river that's continuously taking me somewhere else. I right. need to be planted. But I learned that early on. And I surrounded myself. I married somebody that would help me do that. I yes. raised my kids probably to the detriment of being very responsible and planting themselves as well. The second thing that David Brooks says that he learned is that when you have one of these bad moments in life, which is, you know, a bad season, whatever, 
you can either be broken by it or you can be broken open, which I, I love. It's all about vulnerability, right? It's all about taking what you've learned and sort of wearing that on your sleeve and showing it to the world and not being afraid to go, hey, this is me. This is what happened. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, walking through the door and introducing yourself incessantly about all of the bad things that have happened in your life. I'm just saying that just using what you've learned to be who you truly are rather than using the the brokenness as an excuse for getting smaller being angry being resentful or lashing out maybe at a group of people that's doing better than you that's that's bad well he says pain that is not transformed gets transmitted i hate to keep like asking you as if you're gonna you know I'm doing it really for myself because I know people who are like that. Do you know people who are like that, that have allowed their pain to be transmitted into just being a pain to other people? We actually know the same people. And I have to say, I think all of us, without just saying, I know people, I can say I personally have been there in situations. I didn't stay there, which is probably mm. the, the right thing right but I have been in a place where I have let my pain my frustration my inadequacies get to a place of being angry with others and the world I yes yes I agree I also think there are people who find comfort in the chaos they love it that's their comfort zone they look for reasons to be unhappy and it when I have said this a million times I'll say it again if you are looking to be insulted if you are looking to be unhappy you are going to find it life has no problem dealing that part up no problem at all if you're looking for how you've been wronged or how, you know how someone is doing better than you and they don't deserve it that is very easy to find I can find that walking out my front door Right. There's, I think there is a group of people and we do all know people like this where mm -hmm. they are complainers. They feel like they've been wronged or that they, their suffering is greater than other people. Right. It, here's what he says about suffering. He says, suffering's great power is that it is an interruption of life. Yeah. It reminds you, you are not the person that you thought you were. Mm -hmm. Right. But I think that that's, important for us to realize that it is an interruption and while we're being interrupted we have to listen oh for, that's the most important part while you're being interrupted because that's where all the you know the sort of good information comes from that's the breaking apart part that's exactly right that's the breaking apart part um we have several people in our lives but um a, a dear friend of my husband's who passed away from covid just last year I mean, this just happened in 2022. Um, he was someone who could never be happy for other people's successes and, in fact, was quite angry about it. And the older he got, which as things sort of go, you get older and you see friends or people that you know accomplishing things that you haven't accomplished, whatever. You get to certain places in your life and you're like, wait, why haven't I? Why am I still doing this? Or why don't I have a job? Whatever the problem is. Um, we... He was a lovely person and they were, they were, he and my husband were friends from the time they were just children. So there, you know, there's that added, like, you feel very loyal to someone who you've known that long. But at the same time, you almost couldn't 
converse with him because he was so angry at all of the things that other people had accomplished. That is a real telltale sign for me when I meet someone. If they give some sort of sign that they can't be happy for others, like they are in no way interested, not in me, but just like in other people's success or what other people are doing, or isn't this cool that he, he went to Greece and, you know, worked over there for six months and, you know, whatever the interesting conversation is at the party. If they can't join in that and go, that's really cool. That's probably a big red flag for me as far yeah. as someone that I don't necessarily need to be a friend with you now because there's some other hidden problems there that are going to come out. Absolutely. Absolutely. He talks a little bit about a theologian and I'm not going to get into it. I'm just going to give you an overview about what he talks about suffering being. And he talks about it being a cavity that just keeps going and going <laughs> and going to a depth that you never thought it would be there. How many mm -hmm. times have we allowed ourselves to be vulnerable, to be open, to be insightful enough to know how deep that cavity is? We want to stop it as soon as it starts going, right? Well, there, yeah. We don't want it to be there, but sometimes life happens and you and get I think there. That's the point, though, is that your attempt to stop the cavity is really where the work comes in because the cavity is as deep as it's going to be. It's going to go down as deep as it as it's going to. It doesn't care what you want from it. So the work at trying to stop it or trying to fix it is really, I'm, I think, where the lesson comes. Right, right. But he talks about when you get down to the very bottom of that cre crevice that has been yeah. created, you get out of your head, you get out of the head of your ego and you get into the heart the desiring heart. Yeah. And then he starts talking about love. Oh. And I love this quote. Um, he tells a little story, but he says, love itself is whatever is left over when being in, in love is burned away. Oh, I mean, that is what love really is. I guess. <laughs> For some. <laughs> no, it is. It's like, but I always want to feel like I'm in love. But again, it's deeper. Being in love is, is the first part of love. Yeah. It's a deeper love. And you know how that is because I love, I, I, when I think about being in love, of course I think about my husband. And mm -hmm. the way I loved him when we first met 37 years ago, mm -hmm. we're going to celebrate our 35th wedding anniversary in a couple weeks. Woo -woo. Woo -woo. And when I think about that love, I thought there could be no bigger, better love. Mm -hmm. I can honestly say the different kind of love that we're experiencing now at 35 years of ups, downs, heartaches, hard things is so much deeper and so much mm -hmm. better mm -hmm. and so much more connected than I could have ever imagined. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I still like to think that's in love though. <laughs> it is. It is in love, but it is a love. It's in love on steroids. It's in yes. love at a next level. Right. It's like the best kind. Yeah. I've seen you two together. I know you're in love. And it, Don't and try it, and fool me. I'm just saying, I'm just saying <laughs> it's not even just about us. It's my description of how it feels for me. And it might mm -hmm. feel different for everybody. And no, it no, does. It yeah, absolutely it does. does. Mm -hmm. So he talks a lot about being in this valley and these, in, in this deep, deep place. And this is what I love. He said, what he says, he said, the hard thing about when you're in the valley is that you can't climb out. Somebody has to reach in 
and pull you out. What if you don't have someone to reach in and pull you out? Well, that's his point. Everybody has somebody. And he, in his talk, he was talking a lot about when he realized that he was going through this divorce, he realized that all of a sudden he had people at work. He had people, you know, at the supermarket. He had people that were on Instagram and Facebook. He had all these peripheral people. But when it came down to it on the weekends, he had nobody. Right. All of a sudden he didn't have any mean, meaningful connections mm-hmm. because they were all superficial. Right. So his point, I, I believe, is that you have to find those. Okay. He put his money where his mouth is because he started this program because he realized how important it was. And it's called Weave, the Social Fabric Project through the Aspen Institute. And here's what it says on that website the, of mm-hmm. Weave. He says, this is the quote on the website. America is fractu- fractured and is living a quiet crisis of disconnection. We have mm-hmm. lost our trust in each other and, on, and in our institutes. Divided, we face uncertainty, social turmoil, and political gridlock. Yet within every community lies the answer. I wish that I wish there was an answer that was just like, so just go do this. Go down to your 7-Eleven and well, that's <laughs> go do it, this. it goes hand in hand with suffering and, and opening up yourselves, right? None of this is easy. No. Which makes it mm-hmm. all the harder to get it taken care of because it takes effort and time and people. Mm-hmm. willing to do the hard stuff. When you went, I know you years back took a cruise to uh, part, one of the stops was Turkey, I believe. Mm-hmm. Did you go to into the the market? Yeah. Did, did you see the weavers there? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's what he talks about that in his TED talk. And I immediately thought of that. I have pictures somewhere of the weavers sitting sitting around it makes it sound like they're not doing anything they're working at weaving but they are they were sitting um he david brooks says weavers are not living an individualistic life they're not there's a group of them and what one weaves is depending on what the previous person wove and on down the line it goes it's a very interesting way to look at your values um by using the weaver as a metaphor do you feel like you could be a weaver Well, let me say this. There are people who I know at this point in life feel like they have never had a weaver in their life. And a lot of that starts with a a parent. Maybe you've got a bad parent. Maybe you've got a bad grandparent. Maybe you've got more than one of, of all of those things. And when then when you're sort of confronted with this metaphor and go, wait a minute, I didn't have that. There are a lot of people that got ripped off and I understand it. I get it. I I hear you, but there's also the answer to that, which is, if you did not have a weaver, become the weaver that you always wanted. That's the whole point of his conversation and his examples in his talk are people who have been literally wronged or mistreated or been victims of really terrible things. And instead of using that as their way of becoming the problem, like we talked Mm -hmm. about at the beginning, they have become the solution. That's right. And so they have become the weavers. So Mm -hmm. they've taken these terrible situations. He talked about a woman who came home after, came home to find that her husband had killed himself and her two children. Now, when you hear those stories, all I can think of is, I got to go. I I couldn't live through that. Mm -hmm. This woman not only lived through it, but lives 
through that pain by projecting herself as a weaver in her own community by teaching women about violence, about teaching mm-hmm. women about how to protect themselves. She's gone to the next level of making a positive connection to pain and making it a healing metaphor. I love those people. I I don't know that I could be one of those people, but we all, I, I was in the news industry for so long that you, I saw so many bad situations where, you know, there's always, if it, if it bleeds, it leads is true. So you were <laughs> always being confronted with these horrible stories about people. There's one in particular, Erin uh, Runyon, who's the mother of a little girl named Samantha Runyon, right. who was kidnapped and murdered in here in Orange County about 20 years ago or so. Um, she turned that pain around and created a foundation. She speaks in front of legislature. She has changed law. And I would hope that I'm the type of person that when I'm confronted with something horrible, like the woman you just uh, were referring to in David Brooks's TED Talk, turned it around and, and created something positive through the pain, with the pain. She used that pain. I think we all hope we have that inside of us. But I, I just have to sit back and, and be in awe because uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm that person. And I, quite frankly, I don't want to find out. But I, the, having those extreme circumstances and being able to make something good out of it. The thing that I love about the weavers that he did talk about is they are making a difference. And I think yeah. that's, that's the part that we as individuals can do in other people's lives. We've talked about the 1%. Last week we talked about being a peacemaker and actually taking time out of your life to do something good for somebody else. That's kind of what he's talking about here. Oh, for sure. And I just, I love the metaphor. And I think that that's, uh, it goes a long way because it applies to, to a lot of things. The simplest of weavers and the most extreme of weavers are still doing the job of weaving. Absolutely. We just need more of it. I think we, yeah, we always need more. And I don't know why it seems, especially now, it just seems like get off social media and stop screaming at people in the Starbucks and try and put things together rather than losing your mind and allowing the public to see it. He talks, so he, he finishes it up. He says, um, he says he's trying to describe two different life mindsets. The first mountain mindset, which is about individual happiness and career success. And he says, that's okay. Those are good things. Sure. But we're in a national valley because we don't have the other mindset to balance it. I feel like because I've been victim to this myself, that if you're giving to people, if you're out there weaving and you're trying to help people who maybe don't want help, don't appreciate the help, claim they don't need it that that's taking something away from you. Like I'm I'm losing my lifeblood here by helping people that aren't appreciative or don't want my help. I think that's, I think that's the mindset that I find myself in a lot and that I need to change. It doesn't matter as long as you're giving of yourself and helping in whatever small way you can, helping weave together your community, so to speak, if I can just steal that from David Brooks one more time, because I love it so much that it, it helps maybe not immediately, but even down the road, it doesn't matter whether you see it help or not. It's, the fact is you were part of the weaving and you were there doing what needed to be done. So we started the talk off. We started our conversation off about agency. Yes. Right. And Free agency. everybody has their ability to make choices. Right. They 
can choose to be part of what the weavers are trying to change and do, or you don't have to be. Mm-hmm. That's the beauty. That's it the beauty of it. It doesn't matter, right? We're not doing it because it's going to take off and, like wildfire, change the world. We already know that's not the, the passage in time that we're looking at. It's mm-hmm. one day. It's one step. It's one person. It's one hand reaching in and pulling you up. And he says this, my theory of social change is that society changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. <laughs> I love that. I know. And, and I amazing. think he's right. He's, he says these weavers have found a better way to live. And it's not dissing on anybody who's not a weaver, who is not participating. What it's saying is pay attention. There's a lot of unhappiness out there. We can change it by helping one another. You can't do it by yourself. No, and neither can the guy next to you who's unhappy. It's it's hard. It's hard. It's it's apparently life is complicated, Denise. I, no one told me. <laughs> apparently, this is not an easy road, and apparently, we're going to have to always continually keep growing. I love though that there are people out there like David Brooks, just like yakking it up on the TED Talk, telling us everything that you know. Here's the problem, and here's what I found as a solution. I love that he's not coming at you like with a hammer to the head. He's like. Here's something that I found, and you can use it or not. You can choose to be a weaver, or you can choose to sit idly by. Either way, that's up to you. But here are maybe some suggestions you could use. I love his presentation of the whole thing, and um, I loved this TED Talk. If you liked the TED Talk, this is we're not getting paid by TED or or the talks. <laughs> David Brooks, is just Ted look at person. Is TED a person? I wish I knew. I don't know. I think it stands for something. Does TED stand for something? Okay, now we look like idiots. Why are we having this conversation? Take that um, out. I completely erase that. Uh, David Brooks' TED Talk is called The Lies Our, Our Culture Tells Us. The, if you just Google that much of it, the rest of it will come up, and you can go ahead and, and listen to or read his TED Talk. It's really great. Also, his book, we'll post a link to it um, on our Instagram, Two Average Girls Podcast. Uh, David Brooks, The Second Mountain. It's a great read. And again, thanks and a shout out to Jannie Stone, who gave us the recommendation. He says, "What we are weavers. And he says, we believe relationships can transform our lives and our communities and ultimately mend our deeply divided nation. Well, I loved this and I look forward to more in um, your series our series, but your series about life is about relationships. So it's it's very cool. I love it so much. So um, good idea, Denise. Well, thank you. I come up with <laughs> some every so often. <laughs> In the meantime, we are Two Average Girls. We're so glad you joined us. I'm Ann Police. And I'm Denise Cooper. We'll see you next time. of Two Average Girls are free wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to hit the follow or subscribe button on the Two Average Girls main page so you never have to go searching for new episodes. Our editor is Aiden Bloomstein. Our social media producer is Samantha Stone. And original music for Two Average Girls is by Jason Freese.